but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in, in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, and sin no more. So today I want to talk about the grace of God as the foundation for living in freedom. But before we do that, um, I want to deal with this text. You may have noticed in your Bible that at the top there, it's got parentheses that are there, and it says, The earliest manuscripts... Um, do not have Matthew seven or John seven fifty three through eight eleven, and I want to deal with that at the very end of the of the Gospel of Mark. You will see something there as well uh, in Mark chapter sixteen, and so I want to. Um, uh, there's not a reason to be afraid of this at all. There's explanation to things, and it's pretty fascinating. But I think it's important for us to deal with that today um, as we begin. Most of you know this, but the original documents that were first written by the Apostle Paul and by John, none of those survived. And so what you had in the first century is you had scribes and other New Testament people. They were, they were writing down the gospel accounts and, 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 and passing those along. And so none of the original documents um, do we have uh, today. That also includes any other ancient documents. When you go way back, do we have the, the actual original, the original paper and pen on, on the papyrus, on the animal skins? Uh, none of those um, survived the original ones. But what we have that has come to us is very, very trustworthy. Just to give you an example of this, when you look at ancient writings of Plato and, and a number of uh, secular authors like that, it is literally hundreds and hundreds of years later that you have documents, particularly even about Alexander the Great. I mean, just a long, long, long time after that. When you look at the New Testament, there are 24,900 um, fragments, complete things that, that, that really are old and close to the original writings um, that have come to us and what we have in our Scripture today. And so... The trustworthiness of the Scripture is really important for us uh, to see and to embrace. There is something in theological studies. It's called textual criticism. Um, I honestly don't like the word criticism when you talk about the Scripture. We should not criticize the Bible. The Bible should criticize us, right? And so, but nobody ever called me when this came about, and they're not calling me today to change it. But it's called textual criticism. Let me give you just a little bit of things because I think it's important for us uh, before we dive into this text today. So there's something in textual criticism called external evidence and internal evidence. 
And it is used by scholars to try to understand uh, the veracity and the accuracy of the New Testament uh, scriptures that have come to us. So when you're you're talking about external evidence and looking at that, this is when they're looking at the manuscripts in regard to what's the date of the writing, when was this written, uh, how widespread did the documents go, like... Let's say, just for example, the, the letter of James, how, how widespread did it go? Where do they find uh, things uh, of it? And then also, what type of Greek was it written in? And, and, and a number of things like that. And so that's the external evidence. And then there's aspects of looking at um, the New Testament that's called internal evidence. And this, this points to when a scribe began to copy another document, um, uh, what did he write down? Was there anything that is a little bit different from some of the other things? And, and what you have um, in these 24,900 really fragments, um, some of them complete lists and, and writings of the Gospels that have come to us, you have very little variance of these things. And, and, and again, it just really proves to us that we can trust that what has come to us in this doesn't have any errors uh, even though it's been thousands of years, um, there's a real trustworthiness um, connected to this. Now, I want to deal with the question of, okay, so what's the deal about John seven fifty three all the way down to eight eleven? Well, when you go back and you look at things, the earliest manuscripts that we can go back, we don't see this text that I just read a while ago until the late 4th century and more into the 5th century. A guy named Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, and once he did that, uh, he included uh, John 8 in there. And once that began to happen and he began to have more writings in regard to, uh, it's called the, the, the Vulgate, and, and it was the translation from, from the Greek New Testament to Latin, and it really began to spread out through the world. And, and, and John 8 really became, I guess in a sense, mainstream at that moment um, because some of the documents before that don't have it, though... There is evidence of the writing of this story that goes all the way back to the late first century and particularly as well in the second century. And so some of the scholars who uh, you might have heard of today if you do any kind of theological reading or research that is out there. um, And so the earliest reference of this that we find uh, in in a complete New Testament listing of things uh, is in the fifth century. But some some people like D.A. Carson, you may have heard of him. Uh, he's somebody that, that is really, really good. A.T. Robertson and John Piper are ones who don't question the validity of the story. They just have some questions in regard to, because it's not in some of the earlier documents, um, they don't discount it. They just think that we need to maybe be a little bit more cautious with this. Now, there are other scholars um, who strongly affirm that what we have in John chapter 8 is exactly what we need to have. It's right where it was supposed to be. Some of those are um, John Calvin, um, A.W. Pink, William Hendrickson, uh, J.C. Ryle, uh, R.C. Sproul, and John MacArthur. Uh, they affirm that this story is obviously true, um, and as well, well as the others that I read a while ago, they affirm that it's true. But these guys say that here it, it's, it's right where it is exactly supposed to be um, in our scripture. One of the things for me, and I spent about eight to ten hours looking at all this because I didn't want to avoid this. We shouldn't avoid, we shouldn't avoid anything that, where people might have some questions about the scripture. We should look at it and look at it honestly and, and deal with it. One of the things that I think 
gives great evidence to it being where it needs to be is this. If you remember, we're now in John chapter 8, and all through this, here's what John, this has been the pattern of John. John will tell a story of an encounter, and then he'll have a narrative. He'll give explanation. And so in John chapter 1, you see that. In John chapter 2, it's the wedding at Cana, and then there's some explanation of things. John chapter 3, he encounters Nicodemus, and then there's explanation from the encounter with Nicodemus. John chapter 4, he encounters the Samaritan woman, and then there's a little bit of teaching and explanation with that. John chapter 5, he heals the lame man. And then the rest of John chapter 5 is giving explanation to what happened in the beginning. John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. The rest of John chapter 6 is this explanation of who he is as the bread of life. John chapter 7, his brothers and the religious leaders and the people attack Jesus. The rest of John 7 is Jesus' explanation of who he is. John chapter 8, you have this, watch this. John chapter 8, you have this encounter with a woman of hard-hearted hypocrisy from the religious leaders a woman caught in sin, not having freedom. The rest of John chapter 8 is about truth and freedom. John chapter 9 is a blind man. Jesus rubs mud on his eyes. He goes and washes. He can see. The rest of John chapter 9 is this unfolding and teaching of who Christ is as the light of the world. So for me, John chapter 8 and all my research fits with the pattern of what John does through his gospel in a consistent way. And so um, just, just a couple more things before we get into the text. And so Augustine and Ambrose in the late 4th and early 5th centuries um, wrote that, that, that there's a possibility that the story may have been omitted because when you read it early on with the way people thought, that people thought that Jesus may have been condoning adultery, which is obviously not what he, what he um, does to condone adultery. But if you go back to the end of the first century, so the Apostle Paul was probably beheaded uh, under Nero sometime around uh, 62 A.D., 63 A.D. And so there's a guy named Papias who lived from A.D. 60 to A.D. 130. He wrote in the late first century, he was an early Christian writer, not a writer of the New Testament, but he wrote of this story that we have in John chapter 8. He told it, a guy named Eusebius, who was, who was the uh, historian in the early part of the second century, he said he learned of this story from Papias. And so you have, you have a church writer, leader, kind of historian at the end of the first century telling this story to Eusebius, who was a second century, early second century a historian telling the story of this encounter with a woman caught in adultery. So we can trace this story within the church of being told all the way back to sometime, at least in the, the latter part of the first century. And so you may think I'm a scholar. I don't think I'm a scholar, but I'll just say this. I have studied this for a long time, and, and I believe that this story is absolutely true. And I think it's in our scripture for us, and I think you will see today just incredible, powerful things in regard to this. One last thing. John MacArthur poses two questions about this when you look at this. And one is, do these verses teach truth that violates other scriptures? And the answer is no, they don't. Uh, you look at this and it's, it's, it, it, it is absolute agreement with other things. And so the second question is, do they in fact co- corroborate other scripture and substantiate it? And yes, they do. So let's now begin to walk through the text um, 
Do y'all feel better about that? Yes, okay, yeah, he's like, okay, I didn't, didn't know I was going to get that, but I think that stuff is fascinating about these things, and I think it just, it gives great credence to why we can trust um, the scripture. So let's look in John 8, verse 1, and I want to I point out a few things here, 1 and 2. So at the end of John chapter 7, there's been a lot of controversy. It says each went to their own house in John 7, 53, 8, 1. But Jesus, after everyone to the house, he went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. I want to point out a couple of things I think are really important about the life of Jesus here before we get into the detail about his encounter with the woman and the religious leaders. I want you to notice that there was a consistent practice in Jesus' life. One of the things that we believe is that Jesus often went to this place called the Mount of Olives. It was a place where he went and he would spend time with his father. He would seek his father. He would pray. He would worship. He would commune with the father. It was a place of spiritual rest for him. And so once again, after, after a long day of battling the religious leaders and them questioning him all through John chapter 7, Jesus, after everybody goes home, he goes to the Mount of Olives and no doubt spends a lot of time seeking his father and encountering his father. And then the next morning he comes down from that, he comes back into Jerusalem and enters the city and he goes to the temple. Now there's another thing that I think is important for us to see here is that the spiritual life of Jesus was very unique in regard to the disciplines that the New Testament show us about who he is. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes home to the place that he grew up, the city of Nazareth, and this is what Luke four sixteen says. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and listen to these words, and as was his custom. Now, just stop there for a moment. What does that mean, as was his custom? That means this, this was the consistent practice of Jesus. This is what he often did. This is what he consistently did. So what did he consistently do? So he's come home, he goes to the synagogue, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and it says he stood up to read. Now one of the things that's important for us to see here, and the application is really clear. Jesus grew up as a boy in Nazareth. As a, they didn't have teenagers back then like we call teenagers today or tweens, whatever the case may be. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Now watch, his consistent practice was every Sabbath, what did he do? He went to the synagogue. What happened in the synagogue? Somebody would stand up, they would unveil the scroll, they would unroll the scroll, and they would read out loud the Scripture. For all and most of Jesus' life, his consistent practice was, what? To do exactly what we were doing this morning. You gather together with God's people. God's word is opened up. God's word is proclaimed out loud and read. And you sit under the authority of that reading. Now, I find this fascinating in some ways, maybe just because of the line of work that I'm in, in my occupation. But I love this reality. Jesus, for 33 years or so of his life, went to church. And he sat under the reading, the public reading and teaching of the Scripture. As he started his ministry, guess what he did when he went all over Israel? That's what he practiced as well. It was his custom to go to the synagogue and to listen. So sometimes he didn't stand up to read. Sometimes he just came and he sat and a, and a rabbi would, would share a scripture and speak. 
and expound upon the Scripture and give explanation to the Scripture. This was a consistent practice of Jesus. Now, if you haven't gotten the connection here, I want to make sure you got the connection. If this was the practice of Jesus, what must be our practice? Exactly the same thing. We gather with God's people. We sit in a room. We listen to the public proclamation. We pray with God's people. We sing with God's people. Jesus practiced that. So not only did Jesus do that, but Jesus also did this. We know this in his ministry, is that he would teach. He would teach in a boat. He would teach on a hillside. He would teach in a home. He would consistently teach, and as we come to the text here today, the glory of his presence would come into the temple, would come into a boat, would come into a city, would come into a village, and Jesus, the glory of God in a body, would teach and proclaim the truth of God's word. And that's what we have in the text here. The morning breaks, the city begins, begins to come alive, and Jesus heads to the temple, and it becomes this incredible scene. He comes, he sits down on the teep, temple and people gather around him and he begins to proclaim early in the morning now somewhere else in the city something very unique is going on and not good unique bad unique and so look at verse three so the scribes and the pharisees come to the temple and they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and they put her in the midst now there's a Huge contrast in the text here. We have seen all through John's gospel, the religious leaders are hard-hearted. They are hypocrites. They fight Jesus. They don't like the things that he's doing when he does them because he does them on the Sabbath. They don't like what he is saying, the content of what he is saying. And so back in the day, in the first century, you had the opportunity to have the leadership, to have these hard-hearted men be your leaders Or now God had come, and He's in the city, and He's teaching, and you could sit under the grace and mercy and the love of Him proclaiming. And so so the contrast between their hard-heartedness and the tenderness of Christ in this text is just amazing. And and, and the church today sometimes can still be this way. It can be very hard-hearted and harsh, and so you've got to be careful Now, we'll talk more about Jesus and justice and justifying here in just a moment. But the text just points out to us these two contrasting pictures in the text. You've got Jesus pouring his heart out to people. You've got religious leaders who have caught a woman. They drag her through the streets, and they bring her to the temple. Now, I like old westerns. I don't know if you like old westerns or not, but you've got an old western and Somebody comes into the saloon and there's going to be a battle in there and everybody backs up and gets against the wall because you've got two guys that are getting ready to, you know, they're getting ready to shoot it up in there and everybody backs away. And I kind of picture that happens. I want you to picture this. So Jesus is sitting down because he would sit down and he would teach. That's what the rabbis did. Somewhere in the city, doors fly open on a home. Come inside, covers pulled back. A woman in the act of adultery is pulled from the bed, probably doesn't have much time to cover herself up, and she is brought through the city streets into the temple. Watch it, into church, into the temple, and Jesus is teaching, and church is over, and they just throw her down right in front of Jesus, very near. And so here she is, there on the floor of the temple, right before the Son of God, 
And I just want to remind you and I, we live in a world that's like that world that we just see there. It's a lot of pointing fingers, a lot of condemnation, a lot of cancel culture going on today. Pointing about the wrongs and the, the failings of other people. And so church is interrupted in the temple. Jesus had been teaching. And it's a time for consequences. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote this. Uh, we will all sit down at some point in time in our life to the table of consequences. There's a time where we're going to have to give an account for our life and, and the things that are going on there. And so here for this woman, she's kind of being forced to do that because of the religious leaders and what they were doing. And sometimes even in our lives, there'll be the holiness patrol that will show up and they will drag you and they will use maybe somebody for a personal means and cause a royal uproar over something, over a sinner's sin or something that a believer has done. And, and, and I think sometimes this is just a picture of what we see here of our day and time. And we've got to be reminded that our God is a God who forgives and He restores the broken. And He restores those who have made a mess of their lives. And are we not thankful for that reality? That He is a God who does that. That he restores the broken, he restores those who have made a mess of their lives. And so, secondly, this morning, I just wanted to, to remind you and I of, of that we live in a world of man-centered judgments. And that's what we have with the religious leaders. Now look with me in verse 4. So they brought her in, they've thrown her down. And they say to him in verse 4, teacher, by the way... They don't think he's a teacher. They hate what he says. They're not interested. They've been fighting him and battling him over this. And so this is even hypocritical in what they're saying here. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, back in the day, it was very hard to convict someone of committing the act of adultery. Now, according to Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man and the woman were both to be killed. And it was harsh back in the day. As a matter of fact, the Jewish Talmud did this, Talmud, taught this, that if a man was caught in adultery, you would go place him in a big pile of manure, really deep, where he couldn't get out, and then you would put a soft towel around his neck and a hard towel, and you'd have two people on both sides, and they would pull and pull and pull until the person suffocated to death. I mean, they were harsh, but to get to that point, you had to, you had to really literally, you couldn't just have innuendo or guessing or kind of shady circumstances you had to be literally caught in the very act of adultery and so they bring this woman in and evidently they have caught her in the very act of adultery there is no innuendo and she has been trapped in this and they are going to use her for their own means but i just want to make this point listen to this just like the woman in the story we are all caught in sin and stand condemned before god that's the reality we're not only born in sin but then sometimes as adults or teenagers or whatever the case may be, we make a decision to willfully do something outside of God's will and we are caught in sin and we stand condemned. And they think as they bring her in, Jesus is either going to affirm our perspective that she ought to be killed or he's going to do like he's done all over Israel. He's just going to let bad people off. He's going to accept hypocrites and prostitutes and a Samaritan woman who's been married so many times and is now shacking up with this new guy and he's just going to love people like that. And I have great news today that he loves people like that. 
He came for sinners to rescue them and to call them to Himself. Not that they would stay in their sin, but they would come to know the freedom with Him. And so we are all guilty. We are all guilty before God. And we are all caught in sin. This is Romans 3.10. Listen to what Paul writes. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And let's be honest, all of us, if you're a believer, you have blown it at some particular point in time. Maybe losing your temper with your spouse or boss in front of other people. Maybe looking at something on the internet and getting caught. Maybe we deny out loud like Peter denied, or maybe sometimes we just stay silent and don't speak up for Christ when something is wrong. Maybe we let out a cuss word in front of Christians or unbelievers that raises some eyebrows. Not that we would ever do this in a world like this, but send an angry email or social media post about something that is destructive to other people. Maybe we've been caught in a lie in front of others and we're just caught and it's really clear or maybe we hold unforgiveness to others and everyone can see that we ought to let it go even when we're confronted and we don't and whatever it might be with us it's shameful it can be embarrassing when we know better and we choose the poor path over the wise path and I want you to picture this woman in the temple in church I just want to picture if it were to happen today somebody were to throw open those doors and just throw somebody down here today and say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, LifePoint, what do, you, what do you think about somebody who does this? And if that's not terrible enough, they drop her in front of the one who has been healing and calling people to repentance all over. It must have been such an embarrassing and scary situation for this woman. But let me remind you and I of something. We're already caught. We can't hide anything. Everything about us is laid bare before God already. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if you're here today, I'm here today, I am here today, you're here today, we're not hiding anything from God. So it's all exposed. He sees it all. As a matter of fact, before they brought her in and laid her down before Jesus, did he know what she had been doing that morning? Yeah, he did. And he was ready for this graceful encounter of mercy that's about to take place. And probably, as I've said, all of us have been there at one particular point in time where the unfolding of the narrative gives us great hope when we blow it and we make a mistake. And so not only is her sin blatant sin that day but what they were doing to use her is also blatant sin to use her and embarrass her and to bring shame to her and here's the fifth thing i want us to see today in verses five and six and seven and it's this is that the love of grace of god does not remove the fact that he loves us and he's so graceful to sinners doesn't remove our need to repent we must repent to come into a relationship with him and to be forgiven. So, so again, now, so, so the woman's been brought in. The teaching stopped. People probably have backed away. You've got religious leaders. They have stones in their hand that they can easily throw 
to begin landing on this woman's body and on her head. And their intensity and again their hypocrisy is so great that they think that stoning in the temple that's supposed to be a house of prayer is a good decision to make. And it's not. And sometimes the church just loses. Sometimes the people of God just lose all perspective about, about how to treat one another and stuff. And so here she is. And they're, they've got stones. And people have backed away. And Jesus loves her. He loves her. But He's not going to let her go and remain in her sin. He's at least going to call her. He's going to call her to Himself. And He's going to offer the opportunity for her to to repent of her sin and to move on. And, and I love what happens in the text. So they come in, throw her down, and they make Jesus the center of the temple in that moment. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to go, all right, yeah, you want to make me the center of this moment? I'll take it. I'll take you up on it. I'll make myself the center. And he's going to just unfold this beautiful reality of what he does in broken-hearted people's lives you see the law of god's righteousness puts us all under condemnation before salvation because of our sin and just because god so loved the world does not in any way negate that god's not going to deal justly with our sin and the sin of the world listen the craziness that's going on in our country today whatever whatever craziness that you see and like that's unfair Where's the justice? I just want to remind us, He will bring eventually everything to justice. It may not be in our lifetime. It may be standing naked before Him at the judgment with lost people, but He's he's going to deal justly with everything. And He he does this with both sinners that we find in John chapter 8. Now listen to this. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, is unveiling, writing there, saying this, Jewish people, you've been given the law, and I love you, you're my people, I've given you the law, you cannot keep it, guess what? Because you can't keep it, you're sinners. Hey, all you pagan Gentiles who worship all these false gods, guess what? You're sinners too. And so at the end of chapter 3, we got this famous verse, for all have sinned, and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. And so, Jews, you have. Woman, you have. All have sinned. And yet in the midst of that reality, God has extended His love, His grace, His mercy, and His holiness and His justice. And our God is so unique, watch, that He can uphold His... He can, he can exalt His righteousness and yet at the same time be loving. He can deal justly with sinners and He can also at the same time be forgiving with sinners he's the only one who can do that he's the only one who has the power to do this and his unfathomable love will not ever lead to his ignoring or not demanding justice in regard to sin and so here you got a woman she's guilty jesus knows she's guilty the reality of that is true and yet he can show mercy to sinners at the very same time that he exalts his righteousness and justice Now look at verse 6. So this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And these pea-brained, preschool, mental thinkers 
are standing before the great I am who is all-knowing, and they think they're going to just trick him. (laughs) And they're not, and neither are we. Their foolishness is of the gold medal variety. Put them on a platform, play a national anthem, and put a gold medal of arrogance upon them. They think that they're about to trap Jesus. And none of us really knows what Jesus is thinking in this moment or what he could have said directly to them. But what he does in this moment is something very, very unique. He doesn't say anything, and I think it probably makes them mad. So here's a guy who's talking all the time, and they hate what he has to say, and now he doesn't want to say anything. He just takes his finger, his holy finger, and he begins to write righteousness on the floor of the temple. And the 2,000-year-old question is, What did he write? Well, who knows what he wrote. There's a number of different things that he could have possibly wrote. Maybe he just wrote the alphabet. I don't know. I don't know what he did. Did he write the name of the man that she was just with? Was he writing specific sins of the religious leaders? Was he writing out the Ten Commandments? Was he writing the names of their secret girlfriends or their former wives because the Pharisees just like the common people, just divorced their wives out of whim and remarried? Did he write the names of ones throughout Israel's history that they, these religious leaders affirmed who were also adulterers? King David, Abraham, Jacob. Or was he just ignoring them by refusing to speak with them over the ridiculousness of it all? And again, I think his silence drove him crazy. And so the first part of verse 7 says, they continue to ask him. So what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What are we going to do? What do we do? What are we going to do? What are you going to do? And so finally he stood up and he said to them, all right, I've been writing, done writing. Okay, you want me, you don't like when I talk, but I'm going to talk. So here's the deal. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just bent back down and he started writing again. The silence ends as he stands up and he speaks and he looks them in the eye and he just calls them to do a self-examination of their heart. This is not a call from Christ that you've got to be perfect to make a judgment about sin because if that's the case, you can never make a judgment because all of us are guilty. But it's a call of what's called boomerang judgment. And it goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use unto others, it's going to be measured back to you. And why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so here you've got men of self-righteousness and they, are, they, are the, they have the biggest logs in the world in their eyes and they couldn't actually see biblically right. They couldn't see the hypocrisy of what they were demanding. And so just because, watch, just because God has great love and God has great grace, it doesn't mean that we don't need to repent. This woman's going to need to repent because in repentance, she's going to find freedom 
and she's going to find truth. Now, the text reveals us this, is that the religious leaders just refuse to be broken over sin, and they just stay the same. Look at verse 9. But when they, the religious leaders, got stones in their hands, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So instead of being cut to the core and recognizing and seeing their sin and and what they have done to the woman and how sinful and shameful it is and what they have done with her and coming to Christ and falling before Him in repentance and begging for His great mercy. They just slip and slink away and they go back home. And what should have brought them closer to Christ, it repelled them. And that's what truth always does. Truth draws us to Jesus or it repels people from Jesus. And so he's spoken the truth and he's about to unveil a a, a depth of his love and and a depth of truth that's incredible. But here these religious leaders hear this and they, they leave. It doesn't break them and it doesn't lead them to Jesus. And they went away one by one. They came as a group and Jesus, like a loaf of bread, and then Jesus just slices them up and they just walk away individually away from him. And they had this great opportunity once again to talk with Christ and to come to a place to understand. But all they wanted to do was point out somebody else's sin. They weren't interested in their own sin. So we have to ask the question, why did the older ones go away first? Well, probably wiser. If you've lived long enough, like some people in the room, I won't call their names. You've sinned a lot and you know you have. And you know that there's kind of got to the place where you're like, eh, I need to be careful in my judgment of others. Because I got some stuff in my bucket path, my bucket in the past of stuff that's not so glamorous. And so I need to be careful. So they're a little wiser. They lived longer and had more sins that they had committed. And I think a third reason is that they knew Jesus was right. He had spoken words that were true. They didn't know what to do with it. And they weren't going to about to come and bow before him. So their option was to walk away. And I think it's incredibly sad. No one repented of the religious leaders. None of them did. None of them repented. And it just shows the blindness that comes with spiritual pride. Now the law of the word of God brings us to a knowledge of sin according to Romans 3.20. Listen to this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. So the law points out, you are wrong. You've sinned. And the law is rigid. And it cannot offer mercy and grace. But the woman is about to find out that she is in the presence of mercy and grace. She's in the presence of what John wrote in John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, consistently in the Gospels, we see Jesus extending Mercy and grace to people bound in sin and being really, really tough with people who like to point the finger at people who blow it. Now these words in verse 9 went away from Jesus, not to him. Can you picture that? Just the 
dropping of stones in the temple. By the way, this is always a curious thing. Why in the world do they have all these stones in the temple? Why do you have stones in the temple? And they, it's like they just had like little stoning booths around, I don't know, the city or whatever the case may be. But, but they drop them and they leave. And I want to share some good news before we move on to the next point. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who never have a beginning and never have an end, who is altogether holy and perfect knowledge, He is all righteousness. He is a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. One day, Jesus was walking along and He passed a tax collector's booth and a guy named Matthew was sitting there. And he said, hey, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew just got up and he followed. Matthew, this same Matthew, has given us 28 chapters of the glory of Christ in Scripture. That guy, friend of sinners. Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of things that are lost and things that are found. And he tells the story because at the beginning of Luke chapter 15... They're watching Jesus, and he's sitting in a house, and you know what's all around him? He's got prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners all around him. And so Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They wanted his words to fall into their life. Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's about to die in days. And this wee little man named Zacchaeus hears that he's in town. He's a tax collector. And he can't see because crowds have lined the streets to Jesus. And so he runs ahead and he climbs up this big tree. And this grown man, short man, is sitting in a tree. And I love what Luke 19 says. And when Jesus came to the spot, he looked up and there was Zacchaeus and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down because I... I want to go to your house. Me, holy God, want to go to you, tax collector. I want to go to your house. And so Jesus went to his house. In Luke 19, 5, Luke 19 says this, 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's got two other guys with him. And they're guilty. Earlier in the day as they're hanging on the cross, they both hurl insults at Jesus. Something happens during the day and one of them has a change of heart and says, can I, can I come into your kingdom today? Will you remember me? And Jesus looks at a guilty man who deserved the punishment that he was getting and said, yeah, you sinner, you're my friend. And today, you will be with me in paradise. You ever heard of this guy named Saul who became Paul? He killed Christians. And Jesus intervened in his life one day and knocked him to the ground. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. I want to remind you and I this morning... Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He is the friend of sinners. And we need to embrace that and and be reminded of that because all of us were this woman one day. We were her. We stood condemned. People could rightly say, 
stoked. You are this. You are this. You are this. And I could try and fight it, but ultimately I would have to say, yeah, it's true. That's who I am. We all were this one day. And the great mercy and grace of God is that He speaks in the midst of hypocrisy. And He calls people to cut them at the core of their convictions. And, and they, the religious leaders walk away. And I love the beauty of the text. And the beauty of the text is this, is that everybody's still kind of backed away, kind of watching what's happening at a distance. And Jesus, the text says, is now alone with the woman. And it's... The picture of that is striking. And so verse 9 says, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. You go and from now on sin no more. Who can really answer the question of, our worth. Is it science? Is it philosophy? Is it man? Is it a government? Or is it God? And I don't want to put forth this morning that only God can speak of the great worth of human beings. That He died for us to redeem us. And so how far does the reach of God Go, how far does his forgiveness extend? And likely this woman has been for quite a while been wondering, do I have any value? Do I have any worth? And she has just been used in a non-loving way. And I love what the text says, that Jesus gives compassion to the sinner. And the scene is built with this incredible great anticipation. Here's a woman caught and adultery with all of her accusers now gone, and she is standing alone with the Son of God. Can you see this in your mind? Just this striking picture of this woman still probably trying to cover herself, not looking around. And she is standing guilty. She's sinned. She's done wrong. And in that moment, Jesus offers grace. And it reminds me of something that both Moses and Paul wrote. Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And God's like, no, you see my glory, you die. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll pass by you, and I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by. I'll let you see my backside. And when I come by you, I'll speak over you my name. And so in Exodus thirty-three nineteen it says, And I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim my name, proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom... I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And then you come all the way to the New Testament and Paul quotes this and he adds a clarification. Romans 9, 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul writes, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So in other words, this, here's this woman, she's on the ground, she's trying to cover herself up, Jesus is there, he sent her accusers away, she is there, she can't do anything to earn anything at the moment. So by an exertion of the will of God, and the tender mercy of God, he extends to the woman forgiveness, hope, mercy, and grace. 
You see, Jesus has the authority and the power to be just and the justifier at the very same moment. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 3.26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just with sinners. He has to be just with sinners and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A couple more thoughts. So he extends compassion to the woman. And what the woman comes to know is this, is that God's grace now becomes the reason as to why we walk in holiness. She's walked in unrighteousness. She knows what that's like. And now He extends forgiveness to her. And He calls her. And He stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. So from now on, sin no more. He extends grace to her. She hasn't earned anything. He just extends grace. And these, these verses just carry quite the punch, the spiritual punch. And it's a powerful punch. He doesn't say to her, go, sin no more, try really hard, and then come back and we'll kind of evaluate how well that you've been doing this thing. That's not what he tells her. Her pardon, her freedom from condemnation, it's not going to be based on her work, but it's going to be based on Christ's word and Christ's work for her. So being forgiven by Christ is not going to be based on whether we get it all perfect after salvation. For if that were so, we would never get it right and we would constantly be doubting our salvation. So that's not what he told her. Look what he did tell her. That his grace in forgiving her would now become the reason in which she lived her life. She could not have to be bound in her sin anymore. She could walk in freedom. She can move on from the shamefulness of this moment. And she could know the glory of who He is. And I believe when we come to know the glorious nature of His grace, we see what we have been freed from. And we gain a new reason for living for Him. We see that He gave it all for us. And we are motivated to honor the one who died for us. Now, church, listen. She's guilty. There she is right before him. She's committed adultery that day. She's made a mockery of God, a mockery of her life, a mockery, a mockery of sanctity, of purity, holiness, righteousness, all of that. And in six months from that moment, that sinner right there, he will bear her sin in his body when he hangs on the cross. And your sin today, and my sin today, and all of our sin today, He bore in His body. And when we come to realize the great grace that's been extended because we are this woman, we all stood condemned before Him, and He has extended grace. Where are your accusers? Look, I'm the only one who's got a right to throw a rock at you. I'm the sinless one. And if I'm not going to throw a rock at you, you don't have to worry about anything because I'm calling you to myself. And the grace of God became the foundation for her living in the freedom that Jesus gave her. And as he calls her to look up, she looks into his face and he invites her 
to see that he's okay being in her presence. He has not left. He has remained. He is staying and he is calling her to a better life. You know what the answer to shame is? If there's anybody in this room this morning and you've got a history of of bad, bad decisions that made a mockery of your life and your family, your integrity, your holiness, your purity, you know what the answer to shame is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and His grace and His forgiveness. And she looks into His face, and I think she's been hiding her face for quite a while, and she looked at Jesus, and in doing so, she sees someone who's not interested in using her, but he is interested in freeing her. And some of us probably have looked into a lot of faces over our lifetimes and over the years and never found what we're truly looking for. And you'll find it when you look today at the person of Christ and what he has done for us. He is a Savior. Listen, he is a Savior who knows everybody's junk in the room this morning. He knows all the darkness in our hearts. And yet he loves us. And I challenge you to go out into that world out there today and find anybody who will love you like that. You won't find it. Because only Christ is this way. And our needs can only be met in His presence. And though she did not come on her own, she didn't, well, by the way, she didn't wake up that morning to come hear Jesus teach. She wasn't going to church. She was having sex and committing adultery and mocking her body and mocking God. And watch this. What was the worst day of her life became the transforming day of her life. Because when a sinner gets in the presence of Jesus and he invites them to come and they come, they are forgiven. It's what Jesus can do. And it's an invitation to move from condemnation to acceptance. All the religious leaders walked away. Jesus stayed and he tells her, I didn't, look, they, they ended up not condemning you. And I want you to know, you've called me Lord, and that's who I am. And I don't condemn you either, and you're not going to get a rock from me. I'm not throwing a rock at you. I'm not picking one up. I'm not interested in that. And I think for some of us, one of the hardest things that we can embrace in our life is this. That I am truly forgiven of the stuff that I've done. We, we sometimes... We, we come to the cross and we lay it down. Okay, yeah, it's forgiven. You bore it. No, but then we come back and we want to pick it up again, don't we? We kind of wallow in our past. And I just want to say today to us, let's, let's understand the theological implication of this. When He bore our sin in His body on the cross, He bore our sin in His body on the cross. And He has borne it. He has taken care of it. In salvation, we have been forgiven. It's covered. He's cast our sin as far as the east is from the west he has removed it and he did that for that woman that day and can you imagine what it must have been like for her to taste grace to just taste it and i picture her walking away and glancing back multiple times at the guy who had just told her she had value and that god loved her and that god rescues broken people Galatians 2.20 For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as he speaks to her and calls her to leave her life of sin, again in striking irony, he would bear her adultery on the cross in about six months. And my sin, your sin, and her sin were placed on Christ. And it's why he's the friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. I, that's good news today. Do you, that's good news today. Because I can be an idiot this afternoon. I know me all too well. I've lived with me for a long time. And he is the friend of sinners. And as we unfold the rest of chapter 8, he's going to talk about come to the light, come to the truth. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. And you'll find freedom if you will come to me. And he starts off this teaching with a beautiful picture of someone who walked in darkness, who walked away walking in the light, free from her sin, free from condemnation. Let's pray together, okay?